You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For August 23rd, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Many models of a mostly renewable U.S. power grid include substantially expanded high-voltage transmission lines, which would be used to ship power from large wind and solar farms located in the boonies to the major population centers where it's needed. But is this a realistic hope considering how few of the lines we've actually built in recent years and the many barriers that they always seem to face, particularly those that might be built by enterprising merchant developers who would simply do it as an investment project without being part of any utility? One might think not, considering the thicket of obstacles that a typical transmission project has to overcome. Federal laws which treat transmission lines differently from natural gas pipelines, which are treated differently from oil pipelines. State utility regulations. Property owner rights. Laws governing interstate commerce. Electricity system needs and requirements. Market considerations. So many obstacles, in fact, that it's sort of amazing anybody ever manages to get one built. And then there are all the ways that we might change the game in the future in order to get more transmission lines built. Giving new or different authority to federal and state agencies, new kinds of financial incentives and project finance structures, or even eminent domain. It's all very confusing and complicated, so we've got a terrific guest to help us sort it all out. Alexander Class is a professor at the University of Minnesota Law School and an expert in regulatory challenges to integrating more renewable energy into the nation's electric transmission grid, as well as issues around siting interstate electric transmission lines and pipelines. She is a co-author of three books on energy law, was a visiting professor of law at Harvard Law School in 2015, and holds several titles of distinction, and it's a privilege to have her on the show. Then in the news segment, We'll talk about whether or not the abandonment of the VC Summer nuclear plant in South Carolina is really the end of new nuclear in the U.S., a ruling in Ohio that will require customers to pay for the cleanup of gas plants that haven't run in more than 50 years, a new law in North Carolina that represents a major departure from its solar procurements under PURPA, but which still gained the support of the solar industry, and an update on the legal challenges to nuclear subsidies in New York and Illinois. But first... We'll talk with Alex Class. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Alex, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I think it's generally understood that more high-voltage, long-distance transmission lines could help us integrate more renewable energy into the electric grid so that, for example, we could send a lot more wind power from the Midwest to the Southeast or even solar power from the Southwest to the Northeast. And it even turns out to be economical in a lot of cases. For example, in episode 29, Christopher Clack explained how a nationwide network of high-voltage DC or HVDC transmission lines is 
always a feature of his cheapest solutions in his models of the U.S. power grid, no matter what kind of generators are modeled, which I thought was kind of a fascinating finding. But despite many years of talking about the potential of HVDC, we can't seem to build more than a handful of short lines. I put a link in the show notes to a map showing that since January 2000, the U.S. has built 32 high-voltage transmission lines with a total length of 3,135 miles, but only two of them were HVDC, and both of those were located near New York City and were really quite short. Just looking at the map, I think they were all under 150 miles long. So the long-imagined future of sending lots of power halfway across the country is yet to materialize. And I'd like to start there. What are some of the common obstacles to building long-distance transmission? Well, there's lots of them. The first thing to point out, though, is you don't actually have to send wind or solar halfway across the country. You can do it much shorter. We have most of our wind resources right down the center of the country, and there's a lot of them. And so we can often hook up those wind resources, which are in oftentimes more sparsely populated states like Iowa or North Dakota or Western Minnesota, but you can bring it to Chicago or you can bring wind resources in the Intermountain West region to California where you've got a big population base. Or within Texas, you have both very, very large cities and significant wind resources. So you don't necessarily need the interstate highway system, but you need some slightly smaller version of that that strategically hooks up wind resources to population centers. But other than Texas, you really need to cross state lines. Texas is somewhat unique in that it has population centers, it has very, very good wind resources, and it also has its own electric grid that's separate from the rest of the country. So that's all within one state. So it actually, right. when it comes to electricity and when it comes to electric transmission, Texas is its own country, which it quite likes. And it's been able to do some really innovative things with that. But when you talk about the rest of the United States, you have to cross state lines. And we have not historically created a federal system of siting, which means the approval of these lines, and eminent domain, which is what we use in this country to take private property for a public use. And I'm guessing we'll get into eminent domain a little bit later. But in terms of just the permitting and approval of transmission lines, in most of the country, in order to bring renewable energy resources using current technology to population centers, you need to cross state lines. And when we federalized other types of transportation, we didn't federalize electric transmission lines. So if you think about the interstate highway system, that was a large national project. That was a federal process. We didn't rely on the states to do all that approval. It was seen as a federally important and strategic project. And so that was done by the federal government. We did the same thing with natural gas pipelines in the late 1930s, because at that time, states and cities were moving to become less dependent on manufactured gas for industrial and residential purposes, which you could make close to home but we're instead trying to use natural gas, which has a higher BTU value, it's cleaner, but of course natural gas doesn't exist everywhere. So they were starting to build natural gas pipelines and states 
in the middle of those lines, so let's say you're trying to bring natural gas from Oklahoma or Texas up to the East Coast, states like Georgia and South Carolina said, what's in this for us? We're not gonna grant permits through our state. And in the late 1930s, there were factories that had to shut down on the East Coast during one winter because they couldn't get enough natural gas to run the factories. People complained to Congress and Congress created the Natural Gas Act of 1938, which created a federal process that still exists today for the approval of natural gas pipelines and for eminent domain of natural gas pipelines. So we had a real need at that time and Congress responded. That was also during the New Deal. We were creating federal processes and federal expansion of authority in a lot of different areas. So this was consistent with what we were doing at the time historically. At the time, we did not have that need with regard to electric transmission lines and electricity. Utilities were fairly local. There was some transmission of electricity from state to state, but there was no real sense of needing a federal process for the approval of these lines. So there wasn't a push to do that then. There wasn't that real push to create some sort of federal authority for electric transmission lines until much more recently. And of course now it's not the New Deal. There is not really the appetite to take a lot of power away from states and give it to the federal government, at least not without some seemingly pressing need, which many people think there is, but I wouldn't say you have consensus in this country that that's true today. Okay, so I think I'm hearing that the primary obstacle to building long-distance transmission is just the fact that if states don't want to go along with it, they don't have to, and there's nothing to make them do it. That's right. You have to make it be in their interests. And oftentimes, the state that is, let's use wind as an example, you have a state that's exporting wind, that's a lot of money to be made for those in-state industries. And so that state would have an interest in building lines to get their products out. And then you might have a state like California that has an interest in importing a lot of wind energy because they have significant renewable energy mandates. And they also have high electricity prices. And wind is relatively cheap. In some parts of the country, it's as cheap as coal or natural gas. That's certainly true where I live here in Minnesota, where we have pretty good transmission and excellent wind resources nearby. So You have a, let's say, California that has an interest in importing wind. You have another state that has an interest in exporting wind. But what is the benefit to that state in the middle if you have to cross another state? They're getting a transmission line that their landowners are very unhappy about because you have a big industrial-looking facility going through your property. You're not necessarily, as a landowner, getting much money for the transmission line. If you have a wind farm on your property, that's a lot of money. You get essentially royalty payments on a monthly basis and it's a good money-making operation. So people like having wind farms on their property. Neighbors nearby might not like having a wind farm near their property, but the landowner who has the wind farm stands to make a lot of money. With a transmission line, you maybe get a one-time easement payment and then you have this permanent transmission line. And so you have a lot of opposition from landowners. You have state public utility commissions who are in charge of the approval. They're hearing from their landowners in the state that they don't want this line. And so either the transmission line company or the wind farm or someone has to make the case why it's to the benefit of those landowners into the states. And sometimes you can do that with money. Sometimes you can do that with outreach. There's a lot of innovative proposals about 
trying to work with landowners and make the transmission line part of the community, just like has been done with wind farms, but that's still at an early stage. And that's not really how we've set these things up in the past. Right. And because of the structure of the power purchase contracts, it's not like everyone along the course of the transmission line is going to benefit from, let's say, the lower price of wind in Minnesota. If the power is being contracted by California and they're going to buy it all, you're not going to see basically a gradient of prices emanating out from the low price of wind in Minnesota. It's going to be you know, that price in Minnesota and it's going to be another price in California and that price effect isn't going to be distributed along the line. That's absolutely right. And that's even more true when you're talking about a high voltage direct current line, because the whole idea with a direct current line is it's like an extension cord. There's no off ramps for the electricity or there's very limited off ramps along the way. The reason why you want a direct current line without all those off ramps where you have the voltage stepping up and down is because it's more efficient over long distances. So you're going to have a lot less line losses of electricity. You're not going to have a lot less losses of electricity along the way, but that means you're also going to have less benefits to communities or cities or landowners along the path of the line. And then it's also important to keep in mind that in a lot of the states where the line will pass through, electricity prices are not that high to begin with. There's real differences in the price of electricity. Hawaii it's over 30 cents a kilowatt hour in in states that have a lot of hydropower like idaho it's about eight or nine cents a kilowatt hour california is somewhere in between so low electricity prices are very helpful for you know businesses and residents in certain states it's not as much of a lever in other states Okay, so there's an important technical difference then in, in the way that HVDC functions as opposed to your your standard AC high voltage transmission line. So with the HVDC, it's point to point, no off ramps. And with the conventional AC transmission grid, it's fully networked, like power can sort of go anywhere through that network. That's right. That's right. Okay. And, and you can take the power off the line and bring it to homes and businesses more easily along the way. Okay, so this speaks to a really important topology question, doesn't it, in terms of what kind of a grid would you want to have and how would it work? I mean, I guess I'm wondering, what would it take to build a nationwide HVDC grid of the kind that Christopher Clack models? Well, technically, we have the ability to do it right now. We don't need to come up with any new fancy technology to do it. And you have several companies that are trying to do this, but they tend to be transmission only companies. They're not utility companies quite so much. So you have what they're called merchant transmission line companies. So they don't have electricity customers. They don't own electric generating plants. They're just in the business of building transmission lines. And so Clean Line Energy Partners is one of those companies and they have maps of you know six different lines that they are in the process of trying to build in the U.S. But of course, the problem with not having generation plants and not having electricity customers is you're kind of an outsider when it comes to all of these states that you want to go through. And you also don't fit into the existing state siting laws in most states. So most states, they set up their laws for the approval of transmission lines and also eminent domain for transmission lines 
with the idea that it would be electric utilities that would build these lines because that's who always built electric transmission lines. Merchant transmission companies didn't exist. And so you have a company like Clean Line trying to build these multi-state lines and they go to these states and say, we would like a siting permit. And the Public Utility Commission says, well, under our law, it doesn't look like you can even apply for a line. You don't have customers in this state. And that's how the law was enacted. Now, can the state legislature change their law to allow merchant transmission line companies to get siting permits? Sure they can. And in fact, Montana did that in response to a dispute over a merchant transmission line company there. But you also have a lot of business interests and landowners in a state that maybe don't want a company like Clean Line to come in. If there's going to be a line built, the incumbent utility wants to build that line. And it's hard to make your case why this out-of-state company should be taking land in the state as a political matter for them to make money. You really have to show what are the benefits to the states. And if you're a company like CleanLine, you also need to really know those state laws and try to get those state laws either changed or find states where the law is more favorable. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are usually at least an hour long. Subscribers also enjoy other features, like our new transcript control, which allows you to search or click in the text or the audio player to jump to that point in the audio and the transcript. Subscribers also have access to our extensive show notes, with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. In the future, we hope to offer even more value to our subscribers. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month just as a way of saying thanks. And if you're an educator thinking that you'd like to make the Energy Transition Show available to your students, just drop an email to me, chris at energytransitionshow.com, and we'll get you set up. Several university classes have already taken advantage of our unbeatable educational discount, and we'd love to make the show available to more smart young students interested in energy transition and climate change. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The VC Summer nuclear plant expansion in South Carolina is now officially dead after the power companies that own it, SCE&G and Santee Cooper, said they are pulling out of the project on account of rising costs, falling demand for energy, construction delays, and the bankruptcy of lead contractor Westinghouse. 
The project has already recovered $1.4 billion of its cost from SCE&G customers, who currently pay 18% of their bills toward the cost of the abandoned project, but who will never benefit from its energy. And that was made possible by a 2006 South Carolina law called the Baseload Review Act, which allows utilities to recover construction costs from customers before the facilities are finished. The plant was on track to be four years over schedule, and its ultimate costs were projected to have nearly doubled to $25 billion. If the plant had been completed, it would have increased the reserve margin on Santee Cooper's system to 44%, or about three times the reserve the utility says is needed. So this enormous waste of ratepayer money wasn't even necessary. But the damage doesn't stop with the VC summer plant. As we reported in the news items of episode 46, another unfinished Westinghouse reactor at the Vogel nuclear plant in Georgia, which is also three years over schedule and $3 billion over budget, may now be in further jeopardy. Under the terms of an agreement struck in May between Toshiba and Southern Company, the owners of Vogel had agreed to cap Toshiba's guarantees for that plant at $3.6 billion, but only if Toshiba were able to come to a similar agreement to finish the South Carolina plant. An agreement was struck, but that plant is now to be abandoned, and it seems likely that Toshiba will not follow through with its payment for it, which could be the final nail in Vogel as well. A final decision on Vogel is expected by December 4th. Item 2. Under a June 29th law by the Ohio Supreme Court, Cincinnati-area customers will now have to pay $55.5 million to Duke Energy for the cleanup of gas plants that were retired in 1928 and 1963. That's right, plants that haven't produced power for more than 50 years. To pay for environmental cleanup... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.